You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Verses of chapter 4, verses 10 and 11 as we close out the series today. If you uh, didn't bring a Bible, we have some hardback black ones in the seat pockets in front of you. You can grab one of those. If you don't own a Bible, you can keep that. Um, it's our gift to you. Merry Christmas. It's never too early. Uh, and if you have one, you can just return it afterwards. Uh, and on those Bibles, we'll be in page 775 if you want to turn there. Now, we've been doing something as we've read the Bible inadvertently for uh, a quite a while. And today, we're going to get an official training on it, okay? So what we've been doing, yes, it's very awesome. You probably didn't expect to come here and get some training. But uh, what we've been doing is uh, after we read the text, uh, normally the person reading the text will say, um, this is the word of the Lord, and there's usually a pause, and usually scattered throughout, you have some people will say, thanks be to God, okay? And so everything we do in a, a Sunday gathering is supposed to orient our, our hearts, our minds uh, towards the Lord. So we want to implement this officially, okay? So this is, this is the first go at it, okay? So as I read the very short text we have today, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. There's going to be a subtle pause, okay? Don't want to jump too early. I'll give a hand motion to you so no one feels weird. And when I give you the hand motion, we're going to say, thanks be to God together. And then as we go on, we'll get better at the timing, and we don't need a hand gesture, okay? So I just want to walk you through that. Don't mean to make light of it, but I want to make sure you feel comfortable as we do this. So if you don't mind standing with me for the reading of God's word, uh, let's read together, and we'll kind of respond uh, in hand as we just uh, learn. So, Providence, hear the word of the Lord. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in the night and perished in the night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Awesome. There we go. Okay. I love a good training in the morning. Always great. Um, I also love that we do that. Uh, I love that we say uh, this is the word of the Lord as, uh, as it should be on purpose uh, to really begin what we're going to do this morning. Uh, I always laugh at uh, one of our staff members. I, w- I won't name her because uh, I, don't want her to, I don't want her to come back after me, but she knows. But every time we add something like that to our liturgy, uh, she goes, oh, we're so Catholic. And uh, I always get a good laugh at it because uh, it's not true. It's just we, uh, we, we like to re- reorient our ways and how we worship around God. So uh, like Eric said, we are closing out our series in the book of Jonah. Uh, this has been, uh, if you haven't been here the whole time, it's been an incredible series where we really have looked at both how God has interacted in the life of Jonah and in the life of the people around him. And we've seen how God has used someone's story to shape who he is and to shape his understanding of who God is. And so we're going to close out this series uh, covering a little bit of the same text that Court covered last week, but we're going to take a different angle at it. So uh, if you could uh, bow your heads and pray with me, we will get started. Father God, we come before you this morning and... We ask that you would open our hearts and open our minds as we open your word. God, shape us by your word this morning in a way that we've never been um, moved before. Don't allow us to leave here the same that we walked in. God, we ask that our hearts 
would be more inclined to worship you than they ever have been. God, in the story of Jonah, would you see, would you help us to see ourselves? In the questions that you ask Jonah, would you help us to answer them for ourselves? So God, as we incline our ears uh, to your preached word, we pray that you would um, help us to listen and help us to love you um, as we are called to do. In Jesus' name, amen. So my, uh, my son is, uh, his name's Caleb, he's an enthusiast. And by that I mean anything that he's doing that he's excited about, he will take it to the next level above anyone else that, that I can even imagine. I mean, so, but here's the thing, he's an enthusiast, but my son also doesn't like to get in trouble. Uh, but as you can imagine, those things are at conflict with one another because it naturally, if you get excited about something, especially as an eight-year-old boy, you're going to get overexcited about something in a way that's inappropriate and end up getting in trouble. Uh, and so one of the, <laughs> the other day he, uh, came home, uh, and as soon as he like comes out of the gate, he's a back walker, and as soon as he walks out the back of the school, he, uh, he sees my wife, and he runs to her, and he's just immediately starts crying. And she's thinking something's wrong. She's thinking he got beat up, or he got picked on, or he got bullied, and he's really upset about it, because he's an extrovert. He really loves his friends, and so anytime something goes wrong with his friends, he gets upset. So Megan's thinking that's the case. However, um, he immediately, because he doesn't like to get in trouble, confesses that he got in trouble with the teacher. And what we come to find out after we hear the story, it's really not that bad at all. And he didn't get in trouble with us because it was, uh, honestly, it was pretty funny. But he, uh, one of the kids said something really funny in his classroom. And Caleb thought it was, more, it was funny also. And he wanted to continue it on. So what he did was he stood up on his chair and started yelling and shaking his hands. And... And he got in trouble for it. And he came out and he was really, uh, really upset about that. But it's just that typifies my son. He is an enthusiast. And so because of that, he also, whenever he describes something or describes how he's feeling, he uses words that are hyperbolic. They're just, they're over the top. They don't fully explain what's going on and they don't actually capture how he's feeling. And so what he'll, it'll be things like he'll have a, his shoelace will be in his shoe and he'll be like, oh, my foot hurts. And we're like, well, does it hurt? Really? He's like, no, just my shoelace is in there. I'm like, okay, then you're uncomfortable. You're uncomfortable. Or he'll, he'll have lunch. And then a couple hours later, when he gets those little like snack, snack rumbles, he'll say, I'm so starving. And I'm like, are you starving? You just had pizza sticks. I don't, I don't understand how you were starving. You almost, you're eating me out of house and home. What's going on here, son? Um, and really what you start to see is, and we've had this conversation with him over and over and over again, it's that words are important. And clarity of words are important. In fact, words are so important, they shape who we are. I mean, I think it must be said that God decided to communicate to us both by his word, who's Christ incarnate, and also in his written word. And so it's important to note that words are very important, and having clarity around those words is very important. And so the Bible uses this word that we're going to see here when Jonah's looking at the people of Nineveh and why he's angry. The Bible talks about this word called enemy, that we have enemies, and that God has enemies. And the Bible describes it very, very specifically, and it's I think it's much different than the way that we define enemy. In fact, let's look at it. Let's look at God's word. Romans 5, verses 6 through 11 says this. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. 
that's you and I, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, so when he thinks they're better than they ought, though perhaps for a good person we would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So it's this idea that, that I, I don't think that there's anyone here in the room that when you think about your life pre-Christ, except maybe some of you, I mean, some of you, I don't know what you're doing uh, before Jesus, but we all have our BC stories, right? So I don't think there's anyone in here that would have raised their hand and thought to themselves, I am and was an enemy of God. I am a sinner. I am wrong. I think theologically we will, we will understand that and affirm that, but there's nobody in this room that I'm aware of, believer or not a believer, that's saying that I sometimes act as an enemy of God. I don't think that there's anybody in here that would affirm that, or at least not, not right out right. I mean, you will in a minute after we talk about it, but, but right out of the gate, I don't think that anyone's saying that. However, we have to redefine, because the Bible redefines what we view for the word enemy. The word enemy is not, principally, it's not just that you do bad things. It's that you walk autonomously, independent of God, and put yourself in his place. That is the beginning of all sin. It's, it's where everything begins. It's pride. Pride typifies being an enemy of God. Someone that would say, I sit on the throne. God doesn't sit on the throne. I define what's right. I define what's just. I define and give out mercy. God doesn't get to do that. I do that. And so that's where we see Jonah. And in Christ, a whole new way of seeing the world has been opened up. All of us have sinned by making ourselves the center of the universe and making God a player in our game. We as a people, we are a people that have made ourselves enemies of God by either one of two ways. You can have what Jonah viewed as the Nineveh way, which is living licentiously apart from God, as in you're just living for the pleasures of life living for the comforts of life. This is what you do. You don't really care about God. This is the younger brother in the prodigal son. He takes what he wants. He goes and does what he wants. He doesn't really care what God has to say about it. He's just going to do it. That's one way that we make ourselves an enemy of God. The other way is by legalistically make, living a very moral life, a very upright life, a righteous life in your eyes, and then just being very proud about that and holding that above other people, as in morally, you step on a stool above other people and you look down on them. That the way that you see the world is the way that everyone should, and if, they're, and if they don't, then that's their problem, not yours. They're wrong, you're right. Jonah has ignored this idea of what it means to be an enemy and directed his attention to the Ninevites. Jonah has taken the second route, the moral route, the I'm morally above anyone else, especially the Assyrians and the Ninevites. I'm morally above them, and so I get to look down on them. Jonah has already cornered Nineveh into a category and dictated what they deserved in his heart. He already created an identity for them and is unwilling to see them as anything else. He effectively has demonized the Ninevites at this point. And what's frustrating is that, for at least for Jonah, is that 
we don't at the beginning of Jonah, we don't really know fully why Jonah runs. I mean, the the tip of I think one of the reasons is he's scared. Nineveh is a pretty scary place at the time. I think he is scared. But chapter four, a little bit above where we're going to be today, chapter four actually tells us why he ran. At least one of the reasons. It says that he he goes before God and almost in a second prayer like he he says the reason why I ran is because I knew what you were going to do. The reason why I ran, I knew you were going to be gracious, and I didn't want that. I mean, he, he quotes Exodus by saying that he knew that he didn't go to Nineveh because you are a gracious God and merciful, that you are slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. I knew you were that God, and so I did not want to go there because they don't deserve it. They don't deserve it. He mentions the, these attributes but uses them as regrettable. He puts himself in God's seat of judgment. And Jonah, unfortunately, wanted a God of his own making and the God who, a God who simply smites bad people and blesses good people. But when the real God, the God of the Bible, not Jonah's counterfeit or fake God, keeps showing up, Jonah is continually thrown into anger, into despair. And Jonah, just like all of us, oftentimes finds the real God to be weird, an enigma, different than him, because he can't reconcile the mercy of God with his own view of what justice is. And so that brings us into our text this morning. Verse number 10. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into the being in the night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? So at this point, God has tried to expose Jonah's anger by simply telling him, hey, why are you angry at them? And he doesn't respond. And then God uses a plant to Jonah. It's like really hot in this desert that he's in. Where he's at, it can get somewhere around 126 degrees. And so Jonah is he goes, he goes off and he sits and God overnight sprouts up a tree to cover Jonah and give him shade. Now, in a night, less than a day, God sends a worm, kills that tree. So that way he gets burned on his bald head, at least from what we think. So he, God uses that to try and expose it, but that doesn't do, that doesn't do it. In fact, it just further makes him mad. It, for, it deepens his disdain for how God is acting right now. And then he exposes it again by comparing a plant to the Ninevites. So when God says that the Ninevites, should I not also pity them? Should I not also humanize them? You're humanizing this plant. Should I not humanize these people that bear my image and my likeness? Should I not do that? When he talks about them, he's saying that they don't even know their right hand from their left hand. And what he's not saying is he's not saying that they don't know right from wrong because at the end of the day, What's interesting about Jonah's sermon is that he doesn't mention God at all. All he says is that that in 40 days, you're going to be overthrown. He doesn't mention God at all, but somehow the Ninevites knew exactly what he was talking about. They knew. So because the Bible says that God has written his law on our hearts that we would know what is right and wrong. There There is a level of consciousness that's there 
in the Ninevites. It's not that they would know right from wrong, but that they are misguided in the pursuits. And their misguidedness has shaped them into the people that they are today. And if you know anything about being misguided with any, I mean, there's all kinds of analogies, whether it's shooting arrows or shooting bullets. I'm in the Coast Guard. And one of the things we have to do is we have to, tra- we have to train in shooting handguns. And one of the longest shots that we have to do, you don't realize how long it is until you step in front of it, is about 25 yards. And if you're off, I mean, when you're aiming down the, down the sights, 20, being off is just like, like a, it seems like a millimeter. You, but if you're off just a little bit, by the time it gets all the way down range, it's, it's off a foot or two. It's very difficult to do that. And if you're misguided even a little bit, if you allow that to be there without any kind of repentance, it gets you to where the Ninevites were. It gets you to where you're at this place where you're murdering for fun. And you're thie- you have thievery that, ru- that runs your life. You're stealing from others. You're coveting others. All the things that God calls us not to do, the Ninevites did, but it's because of their misguidedness. Now, what Jonah didn't realize is that he himself was also misguided. He was also misguided in his, abil- in his desire to want to exact justice on them. And just as broken and misguided as the Ninevites were, Jonah and we need to see that we are as well. Jonah required the forgiveness of God as an enemy, and that forgiveness was meant to be extent to the Ninevites. And this is always true, that when God extends a, himself or one of his attributes, he is, it is meant to extend to the world around us. Whether that's God's love being extended to us, we're meant to show that to others. Whether it's God's peace that's extended to us in Christ, we're meant to be the peace for those around us. When God extends kindness to us, we are meant to show kindness to others. When God extends mercy and has extended mercy to us in Christ, we are meant to extend that same mercy to other people. There's never a moment in the life of the believer where God extends himself to you and it just terminates on you, terminates on you and now you get to stand in the place of God and be the a de facto decision maker on who gets what, uh, what love, what peace, what kindness, what mercy. That's not how that works. In some ways, we are meant to be a conduit of and really a mirror of what God is doing inside of us, that if it's happening inside of our hearts, it should be happening to those around us. And this is explicitly true about loving our enemies. Forgiveness of our enemies is one of the most fundamental core issues of the gospel. Like we said earlier, we ourselves were enemies of God. It is what we were to God and what God has extended to us. And so we are called to extend it to other people. In fact, Jesus says it this way in Luke chapter 6, verse 27, 28. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. And so as hard of a text as that may be, especially for some of us with difficult stories of people taking advantage of us, sometimes we treat Jesus' commands to us like they're optional. We need to reconcile the fact that God may love your enemy just as much as he loves you. And, here, and it's, I think it's easy for us to understand that God would love our enemy. Truthfully, I think that's easy. Yes, yeah, sure, God loves that person. I think where it gets really difficult is when we have to understand that God's called us to love them too. That it's it's not just, does God love your enemy? Of course, that's true. But God also has asked you to love that same person. 
Now, I think that looks different and applied differently in, in various circumstances, uh, especially your own. But at the end of the day, God would also require us to love our neighbor and love our enemy the way that he does as well. Defining others by their mistakes is much easier than loving them. I think it's, this is a, a common practice, not only in our culture, but I think in the lives of the believers. Honestly, we even do it for ourselves. Where we either make a mistake or someone makes a mistake or someone wrongs us or we wrong another, and we define them by that. They are that. It's not just that they did something to us, but they are it. If someone lies to us, it's not, if we, if we define them by that, it's not just that they lied in a moment of weakness, but they are a liar. Or if somebody steals from us, they are a thief. Our culture wants to do that, and I think that's the proclivity of our hearts, that we want to define others and even ourselves. We make a, mis- we, we make a mistake, we sin against God, and we define ourselves by that and deem ourselves unfixable or unreachable by God, and it just simply couldn't be further from the truth. We can't be, we, it is much easier to define other people by their mistakes, and it's much more difficult to love them through it, but that's the call of the gospel, and that's the call for the believer. And you can see this happening here in Jonah. The Ninevites have become demonized in Jonah's heart. They have been defined by their faults. Like I said earlier, we, ha- we live in a culture that wants to draw straight lines. You either are something or you aren't something. There's nothing in between. You're either wrong or you're right. That, and that goes in, this, in the sphere of education, in the sphere of uh, politics, in the workplace, in the home, Everywhere we try to draw straight lines because identities are easily found there. And we are a people that are striving and constantly seeking for an identity. We want to know where we stand. We want to know that we have a place. We want to know fully with surety that we are good. And the best way to do that is to create identities, draw straight lines. Because straight lines mean that you can control it. Creating identities mean that you can control it. When you define someone by their faults, that's easy to know. I don't have to question anything else. It doesn't have to get messy. I have to worry about whether or not are they an image bearer. But they're just, they are this thing, or I am this thing. And by doing that, what we're really saying is I want control. I want to be able to control the people and the circumstances around me because that's much easier to deal with, even even if it's chaotic. It is much easier to define someone as something bad, even if that creates more chaos in your life, because ultimately that is easier to control. And we, re- we have to realize that our heart of hearts, that not even God does that. Psalm 103 makes that very clear for us, that God does not deal with us according to our iniquities. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins. If, if God doesn't do that, then we shouldn't extend that same, that, that same effort towards other people. We shouldn't deal with people according to our to their sins or their iniquities. We shouldn't define people by their problems. That, uh, that doesn't mean that we don't operate in wisdom and for people that have wronged us that we don't create good, good and healthy boundaries, but what it does mean is that we don't define them as something that God doesn't. The truth is, is that most of the time it's never that simple. That people have complicated stories. Just myself, everyone, else, everyone here in this room, everyone in the world, all has an origin story that has shaped who they are. Whether, whether or not they knew that God was involved in that, at the end of the day, they are who they are because of their story. 
and to just corner people into something without actually knowing them, I think is where we make mistakes. In fact, I think that I believe that most issues are relational, that most issues that we have with other people are similar to what's happened to Jonah, where we label people as something and we deal with them and treat them as that something. And I know this isn't easy. I know there are stories in this room that have real pain and real hurt and real wounds right now. But if there's one place where the barrage of pain and hurt ends, it's at the cross of Christ. The people that center their life on the person and work of Jesus are simply called to live differently because at the end of the day, our wounds and our ability to forgive start and begin, start and end at the cross. That is the center of what we do. Christ extended his forgiveness to us as an enemy of God, and we extend forgiveness to other people who are enemies. The Ninevites were bad, but Jonah in this story is the most hard-hearted person here. Being part of a covenant people, being a Christian, being a believer doesn't give us the moral high ground to simply lord it over people as hypocrites. But instead, and it certainly doesn't give us the opportunity to withhold compassion and grace to others, but instead it calls us, calls us to a greater purpose, a greater, uh, a greater picture of God's story, and that's to extend the grace and mercy of God to others that don't deserve it just like us. So for us this morning, that enemy could be defined as a bunch of different ways. The enemy, it could be someone that's wronged you. It could be someone that's wronged someone you care about. It could just be someone that you just can't stand, just straight up annoying. But here's the deal. It's okay to struggle with these feelings, but the issue comes with how we handle them. And see, we, like we said earlier, we want to define people by what they do or what they don't do, and we end up assigning identities to them as they have wronged us. And conversely, what ends up happening on, on top of that is we end up painting ourselves in, in the complete opposite light. So if we call someone a liar, we say we are truth bearers. Or if this person is rude, I'm kind. It's part of that effort to draw straight lines where we want to paint someone as an enemy and we are not. They're on the wrong team, I'm on the right team. It's the, the, that sword swings both ways where it's not just I'm potentially hurting someone else, but I am also becoming prideful and stepping above them. It's a double-edged sword that has a double effect. We need to understand that it's quite possible, for one, that we, at one point, were all enemies of God, but two, that these people were placed in our life by God to shape and mold us into his image. Theologian Walter Wink says this, This is the gift our enemy may be able to bring us, to see aspects of ourselves that we cannot discover any other way than through our enemies. Our friends seldom tell us these things. They are our friends precisely because they are able to overlook or ignore this part of us. The enemy is thus not merely a hurdle to be leaped on the way to God. The enemy can be the way to God. We cannot come to terms with our shadow except through our enemies. We have almost no other access to those unacceptable parts of ourselves that need redeeming except through the mirror that our enemies hold up to us. And so what, what happens in Jonah is Nineveh, becomes Nineveh, their departure from walking with God, their, 
living autonomously from him, being independent. Nineveh served as a, as a mirror to Jonah's soul. And we've talked about that often, that at the end of the day, God was working a, st- a story in Jonah as he worked a story in Nineveh. And so in the same way that Jonah needed to realize he was himself an enemy of God with questionable character, and God, with grace, drew him back to himself, that he used that same redeeming act to use Jonah to redeem Nineveh. And so just as God loved his enemy in Jonah, he also called Jonah to go and love his enemy in Nineveh. And this text finishes with a question. In verses four, uh, verse four eleven, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which uh, there are more than one hundred twenty thousand persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? And here's the thing: we don't get a response from Jonah, but the truth is, is that we don't need one, because the desire to miss, the desire to get a response from Jonah is also a desire to miss the entire message of the book. The story is about a word from God to his people. We don't get an answer from Jonah because ultimately the question isn't for Jonah. The question's for us. The question is for us to answer. The real question is how am I living the response to God's question here? That does God not get to be the arbiter of both his will, his plan, his grace, and his mercy. Does not, does not he get to do that? If God is the creator of all, doesn't he get to make the decisions? If, he, if his word is perfect, doesn't that mean it defines and aligns everything that we should be doing? That it should be, it should, even if we feel or experience something in our lives, God's word should be the anchor by which we, refer, we go back to. And even if something feels different, we need to be adjusted. We need to be molted, not, not God's word, not God's character. I mentioned the parable of the prodigal son earlier, and I think it's appropriate to end this way because I think the story of Jonah ends the same way that parable does. So in, verse, uh, in Luke chapter 15, verses 30 through 32, says this, But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. As in, you threw a big party for him. He did what was wrong. He did not do what was right. He took all that you had. He took all of his inheritance. He wished you were dead, took it, left, and lived his own life. And he, all of a sudden, just come back and then you throw a party for him? You give him your ring, your robe, and you you slaughter the fattened calf for him and celebrate? That's what he said. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. What a powerful response. This is the same response that God has to Jonah. That he doesn't simply try to defend his position to throw a party. But instead, he contends for the heart of the older son. Like God is contending for the heart of Jonah. Like God is contending for your heart right now. He contends with him. Look what he says. He says, son, you are always with me. It's like Nineveh or the younger brother is a threat to my position before God. And God's simply reminding us that uh, that is not the case. I am always with you is what God says. You are always with me and all that is mine is yours. I have given you 
everything. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this is your brother, for this your brother was dead and is alive, was lost and is found. Just like God said, God asked Jonah a question. He said, do you do well to be angry? And he doesn't ever, and Jonah never, I mean, he answers it kind of, but doesn't ever answer it fully. Doesn't ever be, he's not ever fully honest in the way that he does it. And this is, this is almost a question or an answer to his question at the end of Jonah. Do you do well to be angry? Because it is, filling to, it is fitting to celebrate. It's fitting to celebrate that somebody would come to know Jesus. It's fitting, it's fitting to celebrate the idea that we can pray to a God in hopes that the, those around us, whether enemies or friends that don't know him, would come to know him. And that has nothing to do or affect our stance before God. For this your brother was dead and is alive, was lost and is found. And the truth is, is that these same words that he's saying about the younger brother, he's saying to the older. That right now you are lost and found, dead, need to be alive. And I'm welcoming you back into the party. And that's what God was doing with Geneva, with Geneva, Nineveh. Sorry, it's what happens, man. You just start getting, start getting after you, start mixing your words up. If your name's Ty, at least. God is doing this to, to Jonah right now with Nineveh. He's saying, we're, trying to, we're celebrating the fact that 120,000 people have turned from their wicked, evil, demonic ways to the God of the universe, and you want to sit underneath a palm tree and pout. Instead, he's saying, let's celebrate this and come to the party. Come to the party. You're mine. I am with you. You are with me. All that I have is yours. Come celebrate. And God is pleading this for us right now in the same way that he ends this parable um, with a statement from the father to a Pharisee equal son. He ends the book of Jonah with a question to a Pharisee equal prophet. And God is using that question to plead to us this morning to plead to us to receive the invitation to celebrate, to receive the invitation that we don't have, just have to love our enemies, we get to. That we were an enemy of God, and God, on the cross, made a way for us to be called children, to be called children of God, and that we get the opportunity to extend that and welcome others to the party. Welcome others to the celebration. Welcome others to the hope that we have in Christ. We get to do that. That we get to live a radical life where we don't put identities on people's wrongs. We don't treat them according to their iniquities. We don't draw straight lines and we don't push them in corners. But instead we say, we were enemies of God. We deserve God's wrath. But Christ took it on the cross and that's not, that's offered to you this morning. That's offered to you, that peace, that love, that kindness, that mercy, that's offered to you this morning. God is pleading for us to receive that invitation to love our enemies, to understand that we were one and that God loved us in spite of it, to not allow us to live the life of bitterness, but to live a life of joy that you can experience in Christ and one that you can extend to others. So if you can, I'll pray for us. And as I pray, as I pray, consider those that 
that don't receive the love of Christ from you for whatever reason, whether they've wronged you, whether they've wronged someone that you love, or whether you just can't stand them. Consider those that don't receive the love of Christ from you and ask God to reveal in your heart where you can extend that to them, where you are in need of that same grace. If you stand, I'll pray. Father God, we we bow our hearts, our heads, and our lives before you. You are the king of the universe. We are not. And so, God, we may, we may be in this room and have lived our lives up to this point, assuming that we can just take the throne, assuming that we can be the one to define and dictate your will. But, God, where we may be prideful, where we may need to repent, we ask that you would show it to us. Lovingly, graciously, show it to us. Allow your spirit to encourage us to push us back to your son who gave his life for us. God, help us to not be defined by our sins, by our transgressions. Help us to not only define ourselves by that, but help us not to define others that way. Help us not to treat others according to their iniquities just as you don't do for us. Help us, God, to extend that gospel that we so rest in to other people that they may experience it too, that your kingdom may be added to. God, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.